Good morning. Good to be back with you. It's always good to be back with you. I want to thank Todd and Alex for their part in leading the music this morning. It's uh, such a blessing to, uh, to be ministered to in that way. Uh, both of them are former students of mine. I was thinking of that as I was standing there, as is many other faces I see in here. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a real blessing to be able to sing and not have the focus be on entertainment. Um, you know, we don't call it that, but so much, it's really what it is, you know, because it's based on what I want. It's based on my desire and not so much about what we're saying. And I, I really appreciate that. It's really exciting to see people I know as children grow up and lead us like that. Thank you very much. Uh, we were... I shouldn't say it, but last Sunday Arlene was crying during the music because it was just so refreshing for her to be around that once again. So thank you. Um, Let's turn to Psalm 120. Psalm 120 is part of what is known as the wisdom literature. I'm sorry, Psalms is, yeah. But Psalm 120 is part of the uh, Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 to 134 are known as the Psalms of Ascent, and these are psalms that the nation of Israel would sing as they journeyed or pilgrimed together from all over the nation to Jerusalem to, uh, for festival time, to enter into the presence of God, to worship and fellowship with Him. They would ascend in that relationship. So, now it's my turn to get there. Made it. All right. Psalm 120, verse 1. In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long... Has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace? I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to call you our Father. We thank you for your pursuit of us despite us. We thank you for your insistence upon your life in us and that you provide the very demand. You live the very demand that you place upon us, your very life. And so, Lord, it is with thanksgiving that we come before you petitioning, asking, Lord, that you would grant us your wisdom in this time. As we sit together, as we look at your word, that we would hear from you, both those who are sitting and I who stands and speaks, that we would profit only as you can make it profitable. Thank you that we can ask such things, Lord, because this is what you would have. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, Charlie and Patsy are in Pennsylvania this week. And since I was the guest speaker up at his hill this week, Charlie asked if I would stay just an extra day and, uh, and uh, preach. And of course, I would welcome the opportunity to do that, just to be with you again, to see your faces again. For those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Kelly Doherty. Um, my wife, Arlene, sitting here in the front, we were on staff at His Hill for a long time and were members here for almost as long, and uh, we've been gone now for two years. Uh, 
The Psalm of Ascent, the first one, Psalm 120. You know, it's, it's so applicable to us today in the journey that we have as believers in our pursuit of Christ. After all those years at his hill, I think one of the most common questions that was asked of me by the students would come sometime about spring. About this time of year, the students were you know, just really excited about being there. They were hanging on every word. They were taking all the notes. And they were just excited about hearing the truth that Christ is more than just your ticket to heaven, more than just somebody to believe in so you can get out of hell and someday go to heaven. But that He was to be your life. That what you were saved for, you are to begin to know now in this life because you have been made complete in Christ. It's a done deal. And they get really excited about that. And they, 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 you know, they like to come and share how they've learned that it's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus living his life through me. And that's the Christian life. And then we get to be about oh, April and they would come back, the same students, and they would sit in my office and they, their, their whole continence was different. They would sit and they were very discouraged. And the question that they would often ask is, when does it start? And so from that, I've learned to respond with any time Jesus becomes an it, you are in trouble. When the person of Christ becomes it, and not the person of Christ, God's very life, then you are in trouble. If we, as believers, are going to ascend in that relationship, if we are going to walk in right relationship, then there must be certain things that we will not do. Growing up in Louisiana, we got our driver's license at 15. They've changed that law now, I'm glad to say, but I'm also glad I got in there before they changed it. Even though I had my driver's license at such a young age, my dad did not give me the freedom to go and do what I wanted right away. He did get comfortable with me driving locally because he was convinced that there were certain things that I would not do, so he let me drive locally. He and mom were away on a weekend outing with some friends in Galveston, and my grandfather had died. He called me up and he needed me to come and pick them up to make it to the funeral. And so he said, son, I trust you. Now do what's right. And so my brother and I jumped in the car and we took off. What then would have been a long trip? Now it doesn't mean anything. But my dad was convinced that there were certain things that I would not do before he believed I was ready to do what had to be done. Before we are ready to live the abundant life of Christ, there must be some things that we will not do, or some things that we will not depend on. The pilgrim is one who has no hope in the world's answers. Verses 2 to 4, again, it says, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. There must be certain things that we will not depend on 
any longer. Peterson said it like this, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with what things are to, I'm sorry, must be disgusted, disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. Have you come to that point in your life where you are thoroughly disgusted with the way things are? You see, we've got to come, we must come to that point where we are fed up with all that the world has to offer before we can be ready for a life journey of ascension with the Lord. Are you fed up? Are you fed up? Now, really, come on now. I mean, I know these are things that we say to each other. These are things that we hear. And if you're like me, sometimes you get so used to hearing the same things, you don't think about what you're hearing. So think about it. Are you truly fed up with what the world has to offer? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, please. First John chapter 2, and I will begin in verse 15. We'll read verses 15 to 17. First John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Now, n- notice that John is speaking to believers here. He's speaking to Christians, people who have placed their faith in Christ. He's not talking to the non-believer. So it's possible then, we we take from this that it's possible for we who are in this room here, who attend Bernie Bible, who sing the songs, who listen to the sermons, who go to his hill, who take all the notes. It is possible for we who are believers to have a love for the world. Do not love the world, nor things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. Now see, that didn't say that most or 50% of what's in the world. But so often we're comfortable with 60, 50, 10. But here it says, it clearly tells us for all. That is in the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. And also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 18, verses 18 to 25, read like this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And since we're so close, staying in 1 Corinthians, just over to chapter 3, and verse 18 to 20 reads like this, Let no man deceive himself, verse 18, If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Foolish to the world's wisdom. Verse 19, for the the first wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Are there things you will not do? Or do you still need the best the world has to give? You see, as long as you believe that there is still hope, as long as you believe that there is still fulfillment and satisfaction in life through your education, from your wife, from your husband, from your children, from your job, making more money, from your looks, from your friends, from your government, then you're not ready to be with Him. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? There's one thing. He never said anything like you're doing pretty good. He said there's one thing. Now get rid of that and be with me. Are you ready to be with him? Arlene and I have a very close friend who lives a very anxious life. She has in her mind where rest and security come from. She's a believer, and that's a big part of her life, but for some reason it is not her life. Christ is not her life. She has a high standard for her children. They must obtain this standard. And she does everything she can to push them and force them and demand of them to be there, so much to the point that they avoid her. She does the same thing with her husband. So much to the point that he avoids her. She does the same thing with her friendships and her, her extended family to the point that they avoid her. She has sat in several Bible studies that I've led and after the Bible study, she just sits there and exhales, just says, on multiple occasions has said, I need to rest. I'm the problem. I need to rest in Him. And it's, it's, it's so easy for us to often see that in snapshots. To see moments of that. 
But she's not ready. She's not willing to say there are things I will not do. I will depend on my own understanding. I will lean on my own understanding. And in doing so, she chases everyone away. And she lives very anxious and frustrated. Does that describe you? Are you anxious? That's not the description of a believer who is abiding and living the abundant life of Christ. Because Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, if anyone comes to me, are you ready to be with him? And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. I tell our students when we come across that, I, I don't, I'm not encouraging you to leave this class and grab your phone, call your mom and say, guess what, I learned a wonderful truth. I hate you. But what does it mean? Because we know that Scripture tells us, John chapter 15, that the fruit that's supposed to be a reality for us as believers is the fruit of love. So what does he mean? Well, by comparison, by comparison, my love for Christ will look like hate for someone else. By comparison. Yet because of my love for Christ, I do love. That's what is to be true. I do love others, but nothing, nothing takes the place of Christ. When Major Thomas married Mrs. T, the founder of Torchbearer Ministry, married Mrs. Thomas, on their wedding night he looked at her and he says, Okay, now, are you ready to be second place in my life. You see, that was his love for her because of his love for Christ. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Are there certain things you will not do? I've told you before, many of you have heard me say this, that when I was in Bible college, I was sitting in a class, church leadership class, of future pastors and future teachers and future missionaries. And the academic dean of our school came in to teach the class. He made a statement, and I was sitting in the front of the classroom only because we had to sit alphabetically, not because that was my choice. But it was an interesting place to sit at this moment when the academic dean of the Bible college came in and said, in order to reach the world, we have to become more like the world. That grabbed my attention. I remember looking up, it scared me. And I turned around to look at everybody else in class as all those future teachers and pastors and missionaries are writing it down. That was in 1987. And since that time, I have watched as the church has taken on that mentality, has aggressively pursued that thought. In order to reach the world, it had to become more like the world. 
all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Not most, but all that is in the world. I've had believers come up to me and say, but Kelly, there's truth in that. We've got to be there among the sinner. We've got to be there among them. I say, yes, we are to be there. Jesus was there. That's what they like to tell me. But Jesus ate with the sinners. I say, yes, Jesus did eat with the sinners, but he never took on the characteristic of the sinner in order to reach the sinner. Instead, he was different, not the same. And this is what drew people to him. Come and hear this man who speaks with such authority. That was in 1987. Well, just recently, a few months ago, um, a pastor, Michael Catt, who's the pastor of Sherwood Baptist Church in Georgia, made this observation. He's an older man now, and he says this, They say you should never move a fence until you find out why it was put there. I don't want to sound like an old, out-of-touch baby boomer, but I think we've moved too many fences in our churches. In an effort to reach the lost, we've taken down fences that were placed there for a reason. In my denomination, we've been moving fences for 25 to 30 years. So this is about the time when that thinking was coming along when I was being taught that in Bible college. And now we are baptizing less people than we did in the 1950s. If we were seeing cultural impact, I might say, yes, it was the right thing to do. However, seeing the divorce rate in church is the same as in, the, as in our culture. Seeing kids walk away from the church in record numbers. You know, right now, some of the numbers are showing that our evangelical kids going into university are leaving their faith or abandoning the church in such numbers that it has been shown by some counts up to 60% of our evangelical kids are leaving their faith. And I can tell you that for 23 years, as a, as a staff, a teacher at His Hill, we would give the entering students a, a basic Bible knowledge quiz. And we are finding out each year that students from all over the world, these Christian kids coming to us from churches all over the world, there is a growing biblical illiteracy. Where they're hearing things for the first time, things that many of us, I'm 50 So people my age and older, things that we actually were taught in Sunday school, they're hearing for the first time. We're seeing kids walk away from the church in record numbers. We're seeing a decline in people willing to serve. Seeing a generation that doesn't even consider tithing. I think I have have a valid case for putting some fences back up. It couldn't get any worse than it is now. And so often when we hear these things, you know, we sit here in in the safety of Bernie Bible and we say, yeah. And don't even think about looking at our own heart. Are there things that I will not do? The pilgrim will not find security from the world. Also, 
The pilgrim is one who recognizes his desperateness. Are you desperate? Verses 5 to 7. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Mylon Lefebvre wrote familiar words to us, many of us, but not so much anymore because we don't sing these old songs anymore, do we? Without him, I could do nothing. Without him, I'd surely fail. And without him, I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. The two places named in this passage, Meshach and Kedar, they are not places that the psalmist actually lives. These are actually places that were far away, but they represent the enemy. And he says, this, I am in such desperate need. It, uh, what, what's going on in my life is so dark that it is as though I were living in Meshach, as though I were living in Kedar. And so for us to understand what he's saying would be something like, it is, it is, what I'm going through is so black, it's as though I were living in Iran. It's as though I were living with ISIS in northern Iraq. Can you identify with that? Is it that dark? Are you going through that? Do you know what it is to go through that? The thing that's going on in your heart that you do such a good job of pretending it's not there and nobody around you knows. Do you recognize your desperateness? We must. We have got to see ourselves for who we are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. This past week, the students and I were going through the book of Genesis, and and part of that was looking at the life of Jacob, the supplanter, the schemer, remember? And as he's pursuing that blessing throughout his life that God had already promised him, that blessing that was his because it was promised by God. And he lived a life of trying to take that, trying to achieve that, trying to earn that in his own abilities. And finally, he comes to the point where he's exhausted everything that is his. He is alone, and he can't sleep, and a man comes to wrestle with him. And we looked in there, we looked at that cross-reference for that and found that that man that he's wrestling with is Jesus. We asked ourselves the question, how can he do that? How can he be so crazy as to fight with Jesus all night? And then I asked the question, how long have you been fighting with him? He comes to that point in his life where he's holding on to Jesus and he will not let go. The one who was holding on to his brother's heel at birth, trying to take what had already been promised to him. And now he's learned that what he's been trying to obtain his whole life does not come from his best effort, from his scheming, from his name. But it comes from the one he's holding on to, Jesus. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, what's your name? And Jacob has to look at him and say, my name is Schemer. My name is Supplanter. My name is I depend upon me. And I'll do whatever it takes to make me win. And it was at that point, when he recognized his desperateness, that Christ was able to do something. And he changed his name. 
No longer Jacob the supplanter, but now Israel, God strives. Can we say along with Paul, there is nothing good in me? Or is it just a memory verse? There's nothing good in me. That is in my flesh. The wishing is present, but the doing of the good is not. Do we recognize our desperateness? Because apart from Christ, we can't realize God's intent, His created intent for us. You see, the land of Canaan was what God had for His nation Israel. But Israel had to be in Canaan in order to know what God had for them in rescuing them from Egypt. The wilderness didn't cut it. And the same with you and me in John 5, uh, 15, verse 5. It says, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you desperate? What is the reality for those of us who refuse to live with dependence upon Christ? Instead, we think it's within us to be like Jesus. What is the reality for the one living apart from God's intent for them? In 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 6, it says this, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. And that's the opposite of what Jesus says is a reality of abiding in Him when He says, you abide in Me as I abide in you and you will bear much fruit. There's a young man back home in Louisiana. He's 18 years old. Huge man-child. He played high school football for a prep school in Louisiana. I think it's the only prep school in Louisiana. And it's because of this, and, you know, because, he was, because of his skill, he was able to play on such a program. And, and because of that, he had lots of exposure. And because of that, he was given a lot of attention by many universities, invited to different camps, Auburn University, LSU. I think A&M was another one. And he was offered scholarships. And everybody thought, okay, Greg's on his way. And then, out of nowhere, shocked us all when just a few months ago, gave up his scholarships and said, I'm just, I'm just going to go to the local university. I talked with him about it, and it was just it's such an encouragement As he gives testimony to this, he says this, this is a waste of my life. Not that it's necessarily a waste for another person's life, but he knew it was not what the Lord had for him. This is a waste of my life. This is not who I am. How easy it is for us to fall into that trap of drawing identity from what we do and not who we are. And so we knock ourselves out to be certified in this and get this education from that and and to achieve this goal. 
And everything we talk about is, are, are those things. And we draw our, our identity from that. We want everybody to know that's what I do. That's who I am. But Greg said, no, this is not who I am. And then he said this, I need to be with the Lord. Do you recognize your desperateness apart from Christ? Having recognized that there is no hope from the world's best and that we are desperate apart from Christ, we will find ourselves in the place where we must repent. It's an interesting psalm the way it's written. See, he starts with the finish. He tells us what has happened in his life. And then he goes on in the rest of the song, verses 2 to 7, to tell us what brought him to that point. So verse 1 is actually the end. Where he says, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord. In that place of desperateness, I cried to the Lord. And he answered me. Andrew Murray once said that the one need of the Christian life, day by day and hour by hour, is this, the presence of the Son of God. You know, can we say that with him? Is that your one need? I've been challenged by this. You know, I I got to live at his hill for 23 years. You know, what a community to be a part of. Get up in the morning and you know what you're going to do. At least you know what your plan is. It always changed. But at least you had one when you woke up. Now I'm self-employed. The mornings are different. Especially in a down economy. You know about the big flood that we had. Well, that picked the economy up a little bit, especially for those of us who are in construction. And so there's been a lot, of, a lot of questioning over the last couple of years. All that I've taught for 23 years, is this a reality for me? Is Jesus all I need today? Or do I need a successful business? Is that what I draw my identity from? I need to find places to preach, places to teach. I'm not getting to do enough of that. Is that what I'm drawing my identity from? Or is it actually true that there are certain things that I will not do? Do I really recognize my desperateness? And the Lord has been so faithful to put that before me every day for two years. And to make, to make me aware of how rich and how deep this life in Christ really is. The insistence of repentance repentance that's found throughout scripture listen to this I'll just read some scripture to you from 2nd Chronicles chapter 6 I'll start in verse 37 I'll start in verse 36 when they sin against you for there is no man who does not sin and you may and you are angry with them and deliver them to the to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near if they take thought in the land of that captivity where they are taken and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity saying we have sinned we have committed iniquity have acted wickedly. And if they return, repent, if they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their captivity, in the land of their captivity, 
where they have been taken. They pray toward their land which you have given in their fathers to their fathers in the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven from your dwelling place their prayer of supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter says in chapter 2 in the first of Acts, in the first sermon preached to the church, he says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus again says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and Repent. I was teaching in Colorado one time, and a student all week, every day, after every class, would come up to me in tears. We were going through the book of Hebrews, so the book of rest, Christ being our rest. And she was so frustrated because she, she wanted that rest, and she had tried so many things to know the rest. She had been active in her church. She had been active with mission trips. She had been active in Bible study. She had been active. But there was no rest. So then she did something absolutely ludicrous and she went to Bible school. And there was no rest. And she'd come up after every class telling me all that she had done and she just didn't understand. Now what do I do? What do I do? What do I, what? There's got to be something else. There's got to be something I'm missing. What do I do? And after the very last class that week, she came up to me and she was crying again. And she says, are you telling me that all I have to do is trust Jesus for his rest? I said, yeah. And she says, okay. I will trust him whom I have entrusted. Years later, as the Lord would have it, Really interesting how the Lord does that. I was in Wisconsin, and I bumped into her. We sat down, and we had a talk, and it was really incredible to watch, to watch her face, though she had been through many trials, really a hard life. There was something in the way she carried herself. There was a rest in her speech. There was a rest in her eyes. There was the reality of the life that she was intended for, the life of Christ. And this life that he has for us, guys, listen, it is present tense. It is now. Look how it reads there. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. It's done. Past tense, he has answered me. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to one more passage, and this is the last one I'll ask you to turn to. I like to say that because that's when people's eyes start to open a little more and they move with a little more vigor. Hebrews chapter 2.
I'm going to start in verse 8. Now, this is, let me give you the context. It's an interesting chapter. It's a chapter where, where the, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the better man for mankind. So he's the better man for man. And then he starts to lay out how, man, how mankind is supposed to live. He's supposed to live in authority according to creation. He's supposed to live out the image of God. And then in verse, uh, at, at the end of verse 8, he says, it hasn't worked out that way. In verse 8, it says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We don't see man living the way he was created to live. What a horrible ending to the chapter that would be. But it's not the ending, is it? Verse 9, but we do see him. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. He was made like us. Who? Namely, Jesus, Yeshua, God. We do see Jesus, we do see Jesus living out the image of God. We do see Jesus living out this rest. We do see what we so desperately long for. We do see Him, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, we might, He might taste death for everyone. Psalm 28, verse 7 says this, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him. Not in my education. Not in my looks. Not in my job. Not in my abilities. But my heart trusts in Him. And I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts And with my song, I shall thank him. Familiar words to an old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. in the light of His glory and grace. The only people that I have seen throughout my life who truly grow in Christ have been those who have realized that there are certain things that they will not do. There is no hope in the world. Who recognize their desperateness apart from Christ. There is nothing good in me. And who repent from their effort, from their sin, and turn to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Are you ready to ascend? Let's pray.